Well, Becky and Sarah send their best. Um, they called me on Skype last night, and they watched the video of the the Chin's video of the rehearsal. They said they wept because they miss you so much. So, um, yeah, I told them that we missed them as well. So uh, they're going to come back. I think they're going to come back together at Easter and uh, visit us. So. That'll be fun. I'm going to start tonight with a definition. You know what it means, but you know what the word gasp means, but definitions always help. It means to draw in or catch the breath sharply as from shock. Um, I'm going to give you another definition. It's the word stunned. Stunned means to be shocked with the emotional impact of an experience. So we'll come back to that in just a minute. Moses had seen more of God than likely any other man who had ever walked the face of the earth, maybe except for Adam and Eve. He had seen much of God's power and glory. He experienced the very presence of God in the burning bush. He watched uh, the Lord God crushed the most powerful nation uh, upon the earth as He crushed Egypt. Moses passed through the Red Sea and he, he witnessed the pillar of cloud and fire. Moses' very face shone because he was in such close proximity to the living God. Moses knew more about God than any man who had ever lived, most likely, save the exception of Adam and Eve. But Moses knew one more thing. Moses knew he hadn't seen anything yet. How many of you know that too? If you're in a relationship with the living God, you know you haven't seen anything yet. That's how it is for born-again believers. Moses knew what every believer knows, every true believer that we will never fully discover all the beauty, genius, and godness of, of God. Um, after a billion eternities, we will have only just begun. You understand what I'm saying? After a billion eternities, we will only have just begun Amen. to apprehend the fullness and the beauty and the genius and the majesty and the splendor and the grandeur of Jesus Christ. It will take forever. <laughs> it will take Forever. So after all this close-up and personal experience with God, Moses knows he hasn't seen anything yet. And in Exodus 33.18, Moses prays, Lord, show me thy glory. You remember the great text? God says, you cannot see my face and live, so I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand as I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. Anybody remember what Moses wrote in Exodus 33.24? Anybody have it close at hand? Exodus 33.24. Anyone got that? What does it say? Someone tell me. Exodus 33.24. Anyone? Exodus 33. What you, what's the matter, Keith? What? Exactly! There is no verse 24. Why doesn't Moses write down what he saw? He can't. Human language is not adequate 
to describe the glory of God. You know, I, uh, uh, you may be more spiritual than me, but I don't really have any problem writing in my Bible. So right there after Exodus um, verse 23 there, I, I, I have written, gasp. Moses can't, he can't write what he saw. God is simply too overwhelmingly beautiful. Too beautiful. He's drawing in a breath sharply as from shock. He is stunned at the glory of God. Finite senses, finite mind, finite language cannot process the fullness of infinite God, nor will we be able to ever do that even after a billion eternities. Infinite beauty, infinite glory, infinite splendor, infinite grandeur. This is why I believe God wired man with the gasp response. It's for Him. That's all we can do if we've really caught a glimpse of the living God. That's the only reasonable human response to I Am. That is a stunned, audible gasp. Fast forward to Luke 2.7. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Yes, the same immortal, invisible, Alpha, Omega, Creator God that led uh, Israel out of Egypt and stunned uh, Moses into uh, a gasp. He's lying in a manger, actually a, f- a feed trough, in a backwater, nowhere place, in a stable in Bethlehem. That's I am, laying in a manger. You got it? Everybody believes it. Yes. Fast forward, John 19.1, And Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him. A Roman scourging was, was quite uh, lethal and brutal. Jesus is... Um, shoulders, his back, his buttocks, and his upper legs were completely laid bare. Yes, as Alpha Omega Creator God was tied to a post and given 39 lashes. The soldiers spat upon him. They gave him blows to the face. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they mocked him. John 19, uh, 17 and 18 tells us that they took the living God to Golgotha and they crucified Him there. They stripped the Ancient of Days naked. They laid Him down on a cross beam. They drove seven-inch spikes through His wrist. Then they hoisted God vertically and drove spikes through His feet. Crucifixion was essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. Yes, that's right. The same immortal, invisible, Alpha, Omega, Creator God that took Moses' breath away that led uh, Israel out of Egypt. He has allowed His puny, little, rebellious creatures to scourge Him and crucify Him. Some of you may be saying, well, Jim, what's that got to do with Philippians chapter (laughs) 2? Everything. It has everything to do with Philippians chapter 2. The infinite, I want you to hear me, the infinite condescension of Jesus Christ is the illustration the Holy Spirit uses when He talks about the kind of selfless humility you're supposed to uh, exhibit in the body of Christ. And that I'm supposed to exhibit in the body of Christ and in the world at large. I want to say it again. The infinite condescension of 
The second member of the Godhead is the illustration the Holy Spirit uses when describing the kind of humility that you and I are called to. Alpha Omega, Ancient of Days, Immortal, Invisible, Eternal God. He's in a manger. He's on the cross. He's in the tomb. But we know the story. He came out. He came out. But beloved, this is unspeakable condescension. This is inexpressible humility and love. This is the kind of humility and love that you are called to as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of humility and love that the, the Scriptures are going to call us to tonight. That we would love and serve one another in this body. And we would go out in the world and, and be known as a people, a humble people who love and serve one another for the glory of Jesus as I told you last week, the first 26 verses of the book of Philippians has an autobiographical tone. Paul's been bringing the Philippians up to date on his situation. Yes, he's in prison. Yes, he's chained to a Roman soldier. Yes, he's being slandered uh, uh, in the church at large. Yes, Caesar may chop his head off any moment, but none of that can touch the joy that Paul has in Christ Jesus. How about you? How easily do you uh, give up your joy? during the day. Paul says, you can't have my joy. You can't have it if you chop my head off. My God is God. And I love my God. I love my God. You couldn't touch the joy of Paul. Paul really understands Colossians 1.16. Yes, he wrote it, but he understands it. We were created by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And because he really understood it, he could joyously write Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We've been talking a lot about this the last month or so. It's not just high-sounding oratory. It's the truth that fills his heart and fuels his life. Beloved, does that truth fuel your life? That to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to be used of Christ. To die is to be with Christ. It's all about Christ. It's not about Paul. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. To live. If I live, I live to please my awesome God. If I die, I go to be with my awesome God. And we saw last week, verse uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, the Holy Spirit tells us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel, standing firm in one spirit, striving together with one mind, fearlessly living out our faith, knowing that it has been granted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. That brings us to chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul begins to flesh out what he was saying to us last week in verse 27 and 28. 
Stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving together. He's talking about unity. He's talking about the unity of the body of Christ. We're not, he's not just talking about denominational or outward or even doctrinal unity. He's talking about the unity of the heart. The kind of unity that, that uh, really glorifies the Lord. Spiritual unity. Our hearts are knitted together. Unity. Yes, doctrinal unity is, is, is very important. It's very important. I don't want you to hear me under, to say that it's not. It is. But the Holy Spirit's talking about something deeper here. I love you. And you love me. It transcends doctrine. That is good doctrine. But it transcends the letter of the law. It transcends the letter of Scripture. I love you and you love me. It's born again. It's the born again kind of unity that God has called us to. It's learning to love our brothers and sisters even as Christ has loved us. That is uh, the litmus test for your love as a Christian. Jesus said, All men will know that you're mine by the way you love one another. And He's called us to love one another even as He has loved us. This is infinitely above loving your neighbor as yourself. You're called to love one another even as God has loved you. How has He loved us? Yeah, that's God in a manger. Yeah, that's I Am on a cross. How has He loved us? Immeasurably. Infinitely. Beyond calculation. <laughs> Beyond calculation. That's the kind of love you're called to, beloved. That's the kind of uh, uh, love and service that you and I both are called to. You might notice that there's an unusual grammatical structure here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, in the Greek, all of these if statements, they're first class conditional clauses. Uh, in the English, you could simply say since or because. That's what, that's what the text is communicating. We could say it like this, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is consolation of love in Him, because there is fellowship of the Spirit in the Lord, because there is affection and compassion in Christ, therefore, live in unity, loving and serving one another. This is what the text says. Look what he says. Verse, there it is. Uh, verse 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Intent. Beloved, is it your intent to love this body the way God's called you to love this body? We should not take this lightly, beloved. This is dear to the heart of Jesus Christ. We should not take this Lightly, Paul's making an argument why our hearts should be knitted together in love and in unity. It transcends denominations and creeds and dogma and doctrine. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about having a real love affair with Jesus Christ and a love affair with His people. That's what the Holy Spirit is talking about. Really loving one another in unity. Paul says... Since Jesus has brought ultimate encouragement into your life, yeah, how has Jesus encouraged us? Is there encouragement? Well, at least to me there is. 
I was hopelessly hell-bound, and now I'm irreversibly heaven-bound. Amen? I'm greatly encouraged. Are you encouraged, beloved? Are you encouraged? Since Jesus has loved us with an infinite, eternal, omnipotent, immutable love, if that's so, since, since we're indwelt by the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, He's regenerated us and sealed us and taught us and gifted us and empowered us, since the, Jesus Christ has lavished, with, lavished us with divine affection, mercy, and compassion, since all of this is irrefutably true, Paul says, live as one. One mind, one spirit. Loving one another, serving one another. Live in unity. I'm not talking about religious Outward religious conformity. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you selflessly and sacrificially loving one another. That's what I'm talking about. That's what the Holy Spirit is talking about. So how do we live these divine realities in our life? Philippians 2.2 2. We're to be of one mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The implication, implication here for anyone who brings discord into the body of Christ is that their sin is not simply against an organization or an entity. Their sin is against Christ Jesus Himself. To bring discord into uh, the true church, the, the believing church, is, is nothing less than uh, an egregious sin against the Lord Jesus Himself. This is a big deal with Christ. The night before He died, John 17, He prayed that we would be one even as the Godhead is one. You know the great text, I trust. That's how one we're supposed to be, beloved. That's how one. It's non-negotiable. You never give up your unity with a brother. Ever. You never give up on it. Maybe there's some difficulty in the relationship, but you don't give up on it. You pray it through. You be wrong 490 times if you have to. Right? How many times do you forgive your brother? Every time. <laughs> Seven times 70. All Jesus was saying, always. Always. This is urgently important for us, I think. In the modern church, we dare not take this lightly. And I want you to understand, the Holy Spirit's not talking about um, unity in an ecumenical sense. Okay? And I want you to understand that. He's not, that's not what His point is here. Ecu, uh, the ecumenical sense would be that man-centered movement trying to unite all so-called uh, Christian churches and denominations no matter what they really believe or what they practice. That's uh, the ecumenical movement. If we have any biblical discernment at all, we understand that there are many false expressions of Christianity in the world today. In fact, if you add it all up, everybody that wears a Christian label, the false expressions may outnumber the true in these last days. The Holy Spirit's not talking about unity with 
with any organization, whether they call themselves Christian or not, who edit or mend or bridge God's Word. We are not called into unity with those who reject the authority of God's Word. We're not called into unity with, with those who make up stuff and call it Christian. We're not called into unity with people like that. Truth always divides. Read your Bible. Truth always divides. Unity does not trump truth. Truth will always trump unity. So I want you to understand what we're talking about here. We're talking about in the true church. The true church. What's the true church? Any church that, that teaches from this and proclaims the biblical gospel. Now if they've added to or taken away, they've forfeited the right to be called a true church. Any church that teaches and preaches and holds up and loves the Word of God. That's a true church. Amen. That's a true church. That's who you were called to be in, in unity with. So I don't want you to have this Pollyanna view that we're supposed to sing Kumbaya with everybody who says they're a Christian. <laughs> no. We can, we can love them and we can minister to them and we can share truth with them. If they're, if they're caught in a false system, we, we can put our arms around them and, and share truth with them, but we're not called into unity with that. Only this. Only this, okay? So I want to make sure we all understand. I want to make sure we all understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here tonight. In the first 26 verses of Philippians, Paul has talked nonstop about his joy in Christ Jesus. Did you notice in verse 22, he says, Make my joy complete. How can the pastor, you know, he planted this church. How can his uh, joy be made complete? By the people having the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says you make my joy complete when you obey Christ Jesus like this. When you do what He's called you to do. To love and humbly serve one another in unity. Discord in the church, beloved. It's always a sin. When there's discord or disunity in the church, it's never not a sin. It's always about a sin. At least one person is sinning if there's discord and disunity in the body of Christ. It's someone who has their own agenda. It's someone who's walking in uh, the flesh opposed to walking in the Spirit. If there's discord and disunity in the true church, it's always Sin. You will never have two people walking in the Spirit in a sustained conflict. I'm not saying that we might not uh, you know, get into a disagreement. We, we might say something we're sorry about, but we will reconcile. We don't stay in a sustained uh, schism. We don't do that. Because the Spirit won't let us. The Spirit won't let us. You'll never have two Christians walking in the Spirit who are in a sustained conflict. They know that this is non-negotiable. This is non-negotiable. You should be wronged all the time as opposed to bringing discord and unity into the church. Discord and disunity into the church. Be wronged! Paul said, why not be wronged? It'd be far better to be wronged as he wrote to the Corinthians. 
Paul was telling the, the Corinthians over in 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3, he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual man, for you are all still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not walking like mere men? This was the, uh, the rebuke of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. We are not called to walk as mere men. We are called to walk as sons and daughters of God. And sometimes you just have to, to be humble and you have to be wronged over and over and over and over again. But in your heart there's joy because you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. You are maintaining uh, unity and harmony and love in the body. Beloved, selfless, sacrificial love is a beautiful thing to God. Amen. It's a beautiful thing to God. And it's, you don't see it a lot. Uh, I've seen it in this church. And I love it. I love it when I see it. But I've had a lot of experience. I've been a Christian a long time. I haven't seen it a lot in my experience. But it's a be and it pleases God. Oh, it's a sweet aroma in His nostrils when His people will love each other. And they'll just be wronged. Like He was on Calvary. And they'll just be wronged. They'll just be wronged. Because they love Him and His people too much. So how do we flesh this out? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look, at, look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. We were talking about this Thursday night at the Young Adult Bible Study. We were covering that passage in James where God says, I hate favoritism. I hate partiality. I hate that. And we talked about this first. This is the one legitimate form of prejudice in the Bible. What is it? Someone tell me. You can consider uh, everyone else around you in the church as more important than yourself. That's the kind of prejudice that, that you can, can practice. Everyone else is more important than you. <laughs> wow, what a beautiful thing. It's a lofty call, isn't it? What a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit says, here's how to be intent on living and loving unity. Do nothing. Nothing. What does nothing mean? Someone tell me. Zero. Nothing. <laughs> nothing means nothing. It means no thing. No thing. Do no thing. From selfishness or empty conceit. No thing. Have we got that? <laughs> no thing. From selfishness or empty conceit. What does selfishness mean? It means to be concerned with ourselves, to be self-absorbed. God says no. And our example is going to be Christ Jesus. No. That's not how real Christians live. That's not how real Christians operate in the church. What does conceit mean? It means to have a high opinion of yourself. Basically, it's vanity. It's vanity. God says no. That's not how I've called my people to live we saw it in our study of Colossians a year or so ago. How does a diverse church have unity? Beloved, it's never an accident. It's because the leadership and the people have humbled themselves and subjected themselves to the sovereign power and Word of God 
in all humility and love. You know, you know, if you're a pastor, you know, they come out with a book. There's 10 books come out a week on how to build the church. Listen, we already know how to build the church. We don't need all those goofy strategies. All we really need is to be in all of Christ and to love and serve one another. That's all we need. Love and serve one another in all humility. That's all the church needs. We don't have to be goofy and stupid. We don't have to, we don't have to do... Yeah. Goofy is in my head. We don't have to do goofy stuff. We just need to be real Christians. We just need to do what God says. You know, we've talked about... It's, 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 never, it's never what we don't know as Christians that gets us in trouble. It's... It's what we do know that we don't do. <laughs> That's where we get into most trouble, I think. We know what we're supposed to do. We know how we're supposed to live. We know what God has said, but we're not doing it. We have our own agenda. Colossians 3, 12-16. Listen to this verse. This, I'm going to read it to you, so listen to this. You're going to love it. It's great. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of, here we go, here's your job description. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Put on love, he says. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. I love the, the, the imagery here. Basically, the imagery here in Colossians is, take off your old clothes. They're no good. Your old clothes of vanity and pride and arrogance and yeah, all that stuff. Take them off and put on God's designer label. It's called love. Amen. That's what you're supposed to wear. You're supposed to wear God's design. It's called love. Selfless love. Sacrificial love. Expensive love. Inconvenient love. It's always inconvenient. My phone never rings at a convenient time. Let me tell you. I always have other plans. <laughs> and your phone never rings at a convenient time. But when a brother or sister calls, that's the most important thing in your day right there. I'm not saying that we can all just drop everything. But we can begin to pray with them and try to make arrangements to, to meet their need. Come alongside. Whatever we can do to be a brother or sister to them. God says you got to take off all that old junk, that self-absorbed wardrobe. you got to put on My stuff. It's compassion, it's kindness, it's humility, it's gentleness. It's patience and it's love. And so, how do we practically do this? We're in the Word of God. Colossians 3, uh, verse 16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. This is why we preach God's Word. This is why we teach our kids God's Word. This is why we have women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies and young adult Bible studies. That we might really learn how to love like Jesus has called us to love that we might learn how to do that. As we study and read and meditate upon this awesome gift He's given to us, His revealed will to learn to practice humility. We, we just simply have to look at the life of Jesus. 
And to learn unity, we just submit to the Spirit of God. In verse 2 here, Paul, it, it, some scholars think he, he made up this word. This word never existed before the writing of the New Testament. Um, talking about this, he says he literally means for us to be one-souled. When he talks about being united in the Spirit, one-souled. We're to be one-souled. I love that. One-souled. That's your call, beloved. This is a huge deal with God. And it's a huge deal with me as your pastor. I've said this. This will be my third time to say this in seven years. We're going to have a pastoral moment, okay? <laughs> I don't do these very often, but here we go. Um, if you're here and you want to major on the minors, if you want to squabble on every fine point of doctrine, if you want to find fault and complain and be unkind and have a critical spirit, if uh, you're unwilling to humbly learn from our, our differences and diversity, which I cherish and love, if you're unwilling to do that, if uh, you're unwilling to be long-suffering with someone in the body who maybe has disappointed you, uh, particularly me, if you want to harbor every perceived offense and be unforgiving, then I can save all of us a lot of time and grief. <laughs> you probably should go find another place to worship. You're probably not going to fit in here. <laughs> You're probably not going to fit in here. And here's my commitment to you. No partiality here. If I discern your fomenting disunity in the body, your phone will ring and I will come see you. I will ask to come see you. And we'll try to talk it out and figure it out. We'll open the Scriptures. We'll pray together uh, for a season. We'll try to work this thing out together. We'll try to find a solution. But if you persist in discord and disunity in the context of Matthew 18, I will discipline you and ask you to leave. I will not sacrifice what Jesus says is our paramount hallmark, which is that we love one another, even as He's loved us. So that's our pastoral moment. What Jesus says means too much. It means too much. It means too much to this body and it means too much to the people who are watching this body. So we won't sacrifice that. We won't sacrifice loving unity for anyone at any time. Jesus commands it. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Colossians 3.14 says, Beyond all else put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So, who has modeled this kind of love and humility for us? You know who? You know who? You heard the text read? Jesus Christ, verses 5-11. through 11. I won't read the text again. You know the great text. There's a ton of theology here, but the Spirit of God's not using it as a theological lesson. He's saying this is how the, the, the born-again man or woman is supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to function in the church. We're supposed to have the same mind that Christ Jesus had, the same kind of humility and the same kind of sacrificial love. That's how a real church works. Some of you may have never been in, in a church like that. I don't know. They're, they're, they're not always easy to find. But that's what God says. That's what the Lord says. Our attitude is to be the attitude of Christ. 
What is it? It's radical humility and it's radical love. <laughs> radical. It's radical, beloved. Yeah, this is the Alpha Omega Ancient of Days Creator God showing us what humility is all about. God who spoke a billion galaxies into existence. He's the one teaching us about humility. I pray, beloved, that we are learning. We are learning what He's saying to us. God has been nailed to a tree. I mean, it leaves me virtually speechless when I contemplate it. I love what John Piper says here. <laughs> he says, Christians should be stunned into humility. If you'll think more than 120 seconds about the infinite condescension of Christ, I mean deeply in your heart, you won't have any problem with humility. At least you'll know you should confess it and, and begin to, to beat that, that, uh, that deadly enemy of pride in your heart. Christians should be stunned into humility. I love that. I love that. Yes, this infinitely awesome, fearsome, omnipotent God, we know what the text says, He was found in the likeness of man. Yes, that's God in a manger, and I'm going to say it to you one more time. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I'll say it to you in our Christmas service. I never don't say it at Christmas because I love it. It makes my heart beat fast and all that stuff. Spurgeon said, infinite, yet infant. Eternal, yet born. Almighty, yet suckled. Upholding a universe, yet lying in a manger. I don't know, I don't know how that doesn't take your breath away. But infinite God is in that manger. Hey, He's not only taken on likeness of man, he, the text tells us that He's become a bondservant. What's a bondservant? Someone tell me. What is a bondservant? It's someone who's a, a servant by choice or by desire. Jesus is a bondservant. He's not just a man. He's a bondservant. He, he went from king to slave out of desire. Not only that, eternal God has been humbled. He's humbled Himself to the point of death. The God who has lived for a billion eternities past, He has come to die for His people. That's breathtaking in and of itself. And not just any death, the most degrading, shameful kind of death. A scourged and beaten and naked and humiliating kind of death. The Holy Spirit says, this is the kind of humility and love I am talking to you about tonight. <laughs> There's really no way to run and hide here, is there? <laughs> God's calling us to serious humility, radical humility, serious love, radical love. Beloved, beloved that's our evangelism. I was telling the, the young adults uh, Thursday night, that is our evangelism. That's where our evangelism starts as we learn humility and love. And look what God says. His name is above every other name. And every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to His name. And every tongue will confess that He is God. And God says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, you remember the words of Jesus, He says, learn from Me for I am gentle and humble. That's the whole point. Learn from Him 
We're to learn from Him tonight. He says, for I am gentle and humble. Jesus is simply saying that He wants what He always says to His people, and that is, follow Me. Jesus is saying to us tonight, follow Me in unconditional uh, humility and unconditional love. Jesus says, if you're going to go with Me, that's what it looks like. It looks like unconditional humility and unconditional love. Jesus is our model of humility. He is also our ultimate model or our model of ultimate exaltation. What does is, what is the, the text here say? That God will highly exalt Him through His humility and obedience? God says the same thing about His adopted sons and daughters. I know you probably know the text. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. I love this text. I love the challenge of it. I love it. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. This is the Word of God. Tonight, we are going to come to the table, the Lord's table, and share communion. We, we have open communion here. At the International Church of Milan, if you've uh, made a profession of faith in Christ Jesus and followed Him in believer's baptism, you're welcome to participate uh, in communion. You know what Paul told the Corinthians? Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. So, you deal with that. We're going to sing a song, uh, play a song. Uh, it'll last four or five minutes. Uh, prepare your hearts. Confess your sin before the Lord. Prepare your hearts and then, then let's come together and celebrate. That's what this is. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of His awesome humility and love exhibited on that cross. So let's come together and celebrate. Take, uh, take these few minutes while the music's playing. Uh, during the song, you can go up and, and get the, the bread and the juice. Uh, Take it back to your seat and after the song I'll stand and I'll read a text and then we will partake of the elements at that time, okay? Okay.